Let me open us with a word of prayer. And we need to undergird every class with prayer. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we recognize your presence here today. We're thankful for kickoff Sunday. We're thankful that you are a God who is sovereign and a God of love and grace and mercy and a God who has made himself known to us through your word and ultimately through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, I, we pray for the nation of Afghanistan right now, especially for Christians that are there. Some of them have already been martyred. Um, Lord, put your hedge of protection around them and American citizens and other folks who are anybody and everybody that's trying to get out of there and we pray that you would raise up a way for them to get out and we pray for the, the country of haiti lord um, just leveled again by another earthquake and we pray for christians that have headed there in answer to their baptismal ordination samaritan's purse and world vision mission teams from churches individuals uh, and I personally know a surgeon, orthopedic surgeon's gone there. Um, and use them mightily, Lord, to bring healing to that, that poor nation. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring an end to this COVID virus. And uh, in your time and in your way, at the same time, help us to learn what we need to learn, what you want us to learn as we go through this pandemic. Use it in some way to refine our faith and to empower your church in the midst of this present culture which is going antithetically in a different direction than you would have it go. May we be a, a beacon, a lighthouse here down at Fourth and Alamo uh, pointing to your light and your life amidst this culture of darkness and death. Lord, bless our time together here this morning. May we leave here encouraged in Christ, more assured of who you are and uh, who we are to be as made in your image. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, you have a handout there which gives you an idea of where we're going for the next seven weeks. Uh, we're going to look at uh, what are affectionately known as the five points of Calvinism, something that Calvin would be shocked. Uh, he would be shocked to have anything with his name on it. He would not want that. Plus, there was no such thing as the five points of Calvinism, or at least they weren't articulated, until 54 years after his death. So Calvin was never associated with the five points of Calvinism. They originated... Uh, uh, he died in 1564, and the five points of Calvinism, the real name of them is the Canons of the Synod of Dort uh, in Amsterdam, not Amsterdam, the Netherlands, um, the Reformed Church in Holland uh, convened the Synod of Dort in response to what they alleged were heretical teachings of a Dutch Reformed pastor named Jacob Arm. Minius, and he objected to a lot of what would be considered mainstream reformed thinking. And so they convened these, the, the Senate of Dort, and they came up with these five canons that said these things must be believed. They're at the heart, the core of reformed faith. So that's what we're going to look at for five weeks. Um, I'm going to try to allow questions every week, time for questions 
I'm going to try. So I've also, you'll see the last section session is nothing but Q&A. So if I don't get your question on a certain week, that last Sunday, we're just going to go at it in here because I know you're going to have a lot of, a lot of questions. Um, and you should. So um, that's where we're going. And I put on your sheet there, uh, you know, some of the things I'm going to be saying are very controversial. They have been for 500 years. And uh, although I always say, I don't know why. And so if, and some people may not feel comfortable raising their hand in a classroom and asking questions. So I'm the, I've always been the most accessible pastor on planet Earth. My phone number's always been public. Uh, you can get my, I put, it, put it there, my email address. Um, I'm always available to meet with you in person, especially if you buy lunch, I will show up. <laughs> I put on there, I'm a Scotsman, so I, we always show up for free lunches. So I, I'd be, I love to talk theology, and um, so I'm available to you outside of class, not 24-7, but pretty much. My schedule's pretty, pretty open. 1982, spring of 82, I, uh, I was a pastor here, associate pastor, and I went to what was called a first meeting of the Midwest Young Evangelical Presbyterian Pastors Conference in Kansas City. And the speaker for that week was a professor from Pittsburgh Seminary, a PCUSA professor named John Gerstner. And he spent the week talking about Reformed theology, basically zeroing in on what we're calling the five points Cal Calvinism, TULIP. And I'd studied that in seminary. I was, I was born and raised in an associate Reformed Presbyterian church, very Reformed, and uh, went to Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, back when it was pretty solid. It's not now. And my mentor was Dr. John Leith, one of the great Reformed theologians in the world. And we immersed in Calvin and Jonathan Edwards. But I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, I, I couldn't swallow one point of the tulip, and that's the L. I just couldn't get by the idea of a limited atonement that Christ's death was somehow limited and didn't cover some people. And so I graduated from seminary calling myself a four-point Calvinist. <laughs> well, Gerstner was lecturing, and I, I can't remember what day it was, but we had a break, and I thought I'd go up to him and talk. And I went up to him, and I thought this would be humorous. I went up to him and said, Dr. Gerstner, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And I remember he put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye and said, I want to have dinner with you tonight. I didn't know it was, I thought, wow, he chose me. There was about 25 guys at this thing. Whoa. So we went to dinner and he said, okay, what point are you having a problem with? I said, limited atonement. And we talked about it and then he said something that changed my life forever. I hope this is life changing for you if you're where I was. He said, I had told him that, you know, I made a, a habit of reading through the Bible every year because I read a thing written by Martin Luther, lectures to his students, where he said, if you're going to be a good preacher, you better read through the Bible every year. And I was a naive first-year seminary student, so, okay. And I've done, I'm on my, I don't know, 45th straight time through. 
I told Gerstner I was committed to doing that. And he said, okay, I want you to do something for me. Read through the Bible every year, and then you're going to have to make a decision to go with your gut or the gospel of grace. I want you to surrender and allow Scripture to take you where it wants to go rather than your gut, what feels comfortable, what's palatable. Look for the plain meaning of the text. Don't try to get exotic. And just let Scripture take you where it wants to take you. I said, okay, I make that commitment. After that year, I was a seven-point Calvinist. I found two Calvin myths. No. Uh, I became a a five-pointer, and we'll talk about how that happened later on. But what I want to do this morning is kind of do an introduction to um, Reformed theology, but that presupposes that we know what theology is. You know, in every church I've served, I've had people come up to me and say, if, I've, if I address them in a theological way, they will say something like, well, I'm not a theologian. No layperson ever says that to me twice. I would say, yes, you are. No, I'm not. I'm not. I haven't been to seminary. I, I said, yes, you are. It doesn't matter. Every person walking the planet is a theologian. Dr. Richard Dawkins, famous astrophysicist in England, an atheist. He's a theologian. Theology, break it down. Theos, Greek for God, logo, means word. Theology just means words about God, God talk, um, thoughts about God. Everybody has thoughts of, to say there is no God. That's a theological statement. So everybody's a theologian. The only question is, are you and I going to be good theologians or bad theologians? That's the real question. The purpose of this class is that by October 5th, hopefully you and I will all be better theologians by taking a look at the heart of Reformed theology. And I really believe the uh, best theology is always biblical theology, which arises out of three questions that just about everybody on planet Earth is asking. Um, you know, the basic philosophical question they say is this. Why is there something rather than nothing? And, of course, the Christian faith says because there's a God. You each either a God or chance. You know, those are your two options. But biblical theology answers three basic questions that come after that. Question number one, is there a God? And if you say yes, then the second question is, is he personal? You know, is he something more than just a force that's out there? Is he personality? And if you say yes to that, then the next question is, well, does he communicate with his creation, particularly human beings, that he's, because he's made us personal? And the Christian faith Christian theology says yes to all three of those questions and says God does exist. He's personal with a capital P, personality, and he can be known. He, he communicates with human beings. In fact, he's made us in his image as personal beings. 
And he's not aloof, um, as opposed to deists who believe that God exists, but they believe he's way out there and just kind of created the world and wound it up and it set it over there to run by itself. But he doesn't interfere or interact with creation. So um, we, good theology answers yes to all three of those questions. And one of the key points of Christian theology that everyone needs to understand is that he doesn't just communicate with us as human beings made in his image, but the chief part of that communication is revelation, not the last book in the Bible. But the Christian faith, what it sets it apart from every other faith, is that it's a revealed faith. And so Christian theology says that in the Word of God, in the Old and New Testaments, that's, that's not a bunch of uh, thoughts that people have had about theology and God and religion. It's actually God revealing who He is to us. And so good theology and Reformed theology must begin with the belief that, and I'm going to use Presbyterian reform terminology here. Uh, it begins with the belief that what we have in the Bible is not just a collection of ancient uh, thoughts by human beings, but this is actually, now I'm using our confessional language from our Presbyterian confessions, the inspired, infallible Word of God, where he's actually revealing himself to us. John Piper, who I had come to Dallas one time on church. He's a, he's a Baptist, but he's Reformed like crazy. And uh, I love the title of one of his later books. It's, it's entitled Memorizing the Mind of God. It's about memorizing Scripture. I love that title because it, it really says what we believe about the Bible. That what we find in here is the mind of God. Now, if you read through the Bible every year like I do, it's the most uncomfortable thing that you can do. I don't know about you, but I would prefer a God who is a cross between Big Bird, Santa Claus, and my grandfather. That's the kind of God I would want. If I could design God, that's the way kind of God he'd be. Problem is, when you read through Scripture, you wind up with a very angular God. 2 Samuel 6, for example. The Israelites have recovered the Ark of the Covenant. And it's on this wagon, and they're bringing it into Jerusalem. And King David is out in front dancing, leading the parade. Everybody's rejoicing. There's a good old boy, a good Jewish boy named Uzzah, walking beside the wagon. This was a flatbed. And um, the oxen are pulling this thing. And remember, God said, nobody touches the ark. Not even the priests. They had these poles that went through on the sides. The priests could carry it, but nobody touches the ark. And so the wagon's going along, and it hits a big old rock and goes like this, and the ark is sliding off. What does Uzzah do? He's doing what I would probably do. I'm going to save the ark. And he puts his hand on it to keep it from... So, and God strikes him dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like that. And neither does David. David rails out at God. 
good theology doesn't throw that out. It says we've got to take that part of God seriously and hold that together with John 3.16. Both are true. The God we meet in Scripture will not be defanged. He will not be declawed. You cannot domesticate Him. And yet, He is pure love and grace and mercy. So we have these, this tension in good theology of this God as He reveals Himself to us. People that don't go with the Bible as being the inspired, infallible Word of God just go, well, that story of Uzzah is just some, you know, antiquated, pre-scientific. You know, back in those days, they really didn't understand. Now we're much more enlightened and God's love and warm fuzzies. And they just throw that out conveniently. Forget it. We, we all do this, folks, to some extent. We all go through Scripture like this, dodging those things. Oh, I didn't see that. Um, to be a good theologian, you take Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22, whatever the last thing, and say, I'm going to take the whole thing because this is God revealing himself. I liken it this way. Um, you can treat the Bible as Luby's cafeteria. You know, you go into Luby's and you go through the line and you go, well, I like that. So you put that on your plate. I don't like that. And you skip that. Luby's versus you've been invited to a seven-course banquet at somebody's home. And they bring the courses out. But what if you don't like course number three? Well, if you're a person of <laughs> not rude, you just, you know, eat it. Or if they have a dog, you know. You <laughs> but you don't go, hey, I don't like that. Do you have a hot dog back there or something like that? Well, that's rude. You, you, you receive what's being given to you, and you don't, you know, badmouth the host or hostess. That's the way good theology is done, if the Christian faith indeed is a revealed faith, if the Bible indeed is the inspired, infallible Word of God, then our job is to receive it. You know, the letter of Jude talks about our job is to pass on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Not alter it to fit the current culture or what's palatable, but to pass this on unadulterated. And that's one of the ways you do good theology. And um, so we believe God has revealed himself primarily in Jesus Christ. But the only Jesus you and I can really know is the one that's revealed here. There's a lot of people want a Jesus that's different than the one in here. And, uh, but you've got to take the way God reveals himself to you and me. Let me make another point about revelation. You know, you can't know me unless I choose to reveal myself to you. You say, no, no, Ron, I can, I can go and interview your parents. I can go interview your friends from, that you grew up with. I can go to the schools you went to, look at your transcripts. I can talk to people that know you well. Yeah, you can. And you can find out a lot about me. You can even talk to me and ask me a bunch of questions about myself. But you're never going to know really who I am unless I decide to reveal who I am to you. 
because I can, I can give you false answers to the questions you ask me. So you don't know. So you, that's the same with God. You and I can look at nature. God reveals himself to us in nature. Christian theologians for 2,000 years have said there's two books we read to learn about God. The book of nature, and you can get an idea about God. You see beauty, you see design, you see symmetry. Um, that's called general revelation. Everybody has that. In fact, Paul in Romans says, you know, nobody can stand before God one day and say, I had no idea you existed. It's, it's, and I was a research scientist before going into the ministry. And I keep reading the area of faith and science all the time. Everything high-tech science is producing today backs up scripture. Just to give you an example, um, one of the doctrines that Augustine, St. Augustine in the fourth century came up with uh, about creation was the Latin is creatio ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing. And Augustine said, you know, God created the universe by just speaking and there was no matter at all. And all of a sudden, boom, there's matter. Galaxies, and of course, planet Earth and us. Creation, and, and uh, that held sway from the fourth century on up to the Enlightenment. In fact, science, modern science, was pioneered by Christians. The whole idea that, well, if God exists, and he's the creator of everything, then the more we explore creation and learn about it, the more we're going to learn about God. And we should be wanting to do that. And so, um, but then along came the Enlightenment in the 17th century, I'm sorry, the 18th century, so-called Enlightenment, and uh, the Enlightenment folks said, wait a minute, you can't get something from nothing. So, therefore, the universe must have been eternal. It was always there. And God just kind of rearranged things. And most, most people in the Enlightenment weren't atheists. They became deists uh, or theists. They believed God existed, but he, he just rearranged. He wasn't the supreme creator. And they laughed at Augustine. Guess who's having the last laugh? If you study the last, uh, latest stuff about uh, astrophysics, uh, you've all heard of the Big Bang Theory. I grew up hearing about that all the time, and I was taught it in college and everything, that, that the, the universe is expanding. But what they don't talk about very much, although they're talking about it more now, is that um, they really believe now that matter, the universe, had a distinct beginning point in space and time. That once, at one moment, there was nothing. And then, boom, and that was the Big Bang. All reputable scientists believe that now. And they will affirm Kratio ex nihilo. And many physicists are becoming theists, if not Christians, because they see there's a creator, a designer behind this. And all the computer models we have now, I mean, Darwinism is on the ropes like you would never b believe. And uh, you can't, if you're a scientist, you can't go against Darwinism in public, or you won't get tenure and you'll get, but scientists behind the scenes are going, I don't know what created it, but it's not Darwin's theory. 
they have computer models that show that there's more likelihood that you and I could go to Las Vegas for a trillion years and hit the jackpot every day. That would be more likely than one little cell could happen by chance. There's just not enough time in the history of the, the universe. And I was a, a, an electron microscopist at Baylor Med School as a research assistant. And so I was exploring the universe that's down in the subcellular level. A simple cell is just about as complex as the rest of the universe. When you get in there, of course, Darwin didn't know this. And so the Hubble telescope, everything else shows us. It backs up scripture and this whole idea that there's a, a designer out there. A great book to read uh, by a Presbyterian named Stephen Meyer. He uh, directs the, what's called the Discovery Institute in Seattle. It's about this thick. He's got two PhDs, and, but it's readable for most people. There's going to be parts in there if you haven't had a science background. But without ever mentioning God, this is the greatest apologetic for the existence of God I've ever read. It's called Signature in the Cell. And he shows how the complexity of cells and, and then uses computer models by secular folks that show there's just not enough time in run the... We think the universe is like, I forget how many billions of years old. It doesn't matter. Run it out trillions of years, and you can't come up with a model that can create even one cell, let alone millions or billions of species of flora and fauna. So, um, Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. It's a great, great book. Um, Why do theology at all? I mean, let's say you believe in God and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Can't we just stop there? A lot of people want to. They, uh, well, um, do you want to know God? Uh, you know, if I, I said, I'm going to reveal myself to you, um, I'm a pretty nice guy. And you go, that's all I need to do. Bye. Well, you don't want to know more? No, no, I like that. I mean, I liken, to, liken it to somebody who, if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm going to put together a hymn book. You go, great. Um, what are you going to have in there? Well, I'm going to start with Jesus loves me, this I know. Great, that's a great hymn. What other hymns? Gonna, no others. That's just the only one going to be in there. Jesus loves me. What about all the really deep, great hymns? of? No, 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 I, I just like Jesus loves me, this I know. That's where a lot of Christians are. I, that's enough. I, I, no, if you really want to grow as a good theologian, if you really want to know God, because theology is not just about amassing facts about God, but the goal of theology is never just in, gathering information. It's transformation. The purpose of theology is for you and me to know God. If God's personal, then we can know him personally. You and I can have a personal relationship with Christ. To, there are going to be a lot of PhDs in religion and hell. You know, they gather a lot of information about God, but who don't know God. They've never surrendered their life to Christ. So the heart of good theology always involves surrender. Karl Barth, who's not one of my favorite theologians, but he did say some good things. But one thing I liked is he said, theology can only be uh, authentically done through a posture of humility. 
um, surrendering to the object of your study. Putting yourself down here and God up there. A lot of theologians, you know, I'm up here, I'm, I'm analyzing God, and God has to fit my mold. So um, if you read through the Bible every year, you're going to find this angular, undomesticated, but loving God. But do you know God? One of my favorite verses in Scripture is James 2.19, where James says, uh, you say the Lord our God is one. That's the Hebrew version of the Apostles' Creed, the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. James says to the people he's writing to, oh, you believe that God is one. Good for you. Even the demons believe. Have you ever thought about the demons are the most orthodox theologians in the world. Demons do not sit around arguing the virgin birth of Jesus. Demons don't get in debates with each other over whether Jesus actually bodily, physically rose from the grave. Demons or orthodox, they're orthodox reformed theologians. They know the five points of Calvinism, the canons of Dort, inside and out. And they know that they're true. So what separates you and me from a demon? They've never surrendered. They don't know God. They just know about him. But they have no relationship. So don't think that just by getting a Ph.D. in theology or mastering what I'm going to be talking about in here somehow makes you even a Christian. You know, there's that old saying, you know, that makes you a Christian about as much as if you hang around in a garage and learn all about cars, that makes you a car. No. The point of theology is to get to know God, and you, we and I know him by accepting his invitation to come into his life and allow us to know him in a personal way through Christ. Let me zero in a little bit on what exactly is Reformed theology. You know, there were three streams in the Reformation. You had the, you had the medieval Roman Catholic Church that really, and there are always have been believers in the Catholic Church today. Back then, John Calvin never said, it's totally apostate. He had friends till the day he died, even bishops that were sympathetic to Calvin and said, yeah, we've gone off the rails, but let's try to correct it, but not as radically as you're doing. And um, so you had this medieval theology, and Luther and Calvin, they never met, but they did correspond with each other. And Luther was older than Calvin. Um, so Luther was the first guy out of the starting blocks in translating the book of Romans and realizing in Romans 1.17 when it says the just shall live by faith, which is a quotation of Habakkuk, um, that, you know, we're not justified through works. It's through faith. And faith is a personal relationship with God. Luther figured that out. And so you have that stream to begin. Then Calvin comes along, and he agrees with Luther. And, uh, and then you had a third stream. Uh, so you had Lutherans, you had the Reformed with Calvin. Then you had a third stream, the Anabaptists. Mennonites have come out of that, and, and Baptists, and... So these, what's the difference? Well, here's a way to help you understand the three streams. 
Picture a chest of drawers. Here's how the Reformation took place. Luther came up and he opened the drawer. He looked in there and then he looked at his Bible and he took out of the drawer anything that he thought didn't belong was not based on scripture. And then he closed the door. Calvin came along, opened the drawer, took the drawer out, dumped it, everything out on the bed, and then put the drawer halfway back in, and then only put back in the drawer what scripture necessitated, and then closed the door. The Anabaptists came along and just basically hacked the chest of drawers to shreds with axes. Uh, they were the radical reformers. And uh, in fact, Luther and Calvin didn't like the Anabaptists. Anabaptists were causing riots in the streets and smashing out windows in the churches and everything else. So they were iconoclasts. They wanted to just tear down the entire church and rebuild it. Their goal was to get back to being like the first century church. Oh boy, is that a mistake. Occasionally people will say to me at the door, what we really need to do is get back to being like the first century church. I always think to myself, I'm trying to be polite. I think, oh, they haven't read the New Testament any time lately. Uh, the New Testament, we would hardly have anything in the New Testament if it wasn't for all the heresy and bickering and fighting and all kinds of bad stuff going on in the New Testament church. That's why Paul writes his letters, to scold them and get them back into line. Calvin and Luther, they were Augustinians after St. Augustine. The Western Church today pretty much is Augustinian. Presbyterians, Reformed, were Augustinian. We follow Augustine's theology, who follows Paul. And so Calvin and Luther, their goal was to get back to being like the fourth century church. That was known as the golden age of theology. There was unity in the church. The uh, massive persecutions had pretty much ended. They weren't throwing people into the arenas anymore. And you had, uh, most of the good theology was done in Africa, Northern Africa. Augustine was an African. And our theology is not European. Good theology is African, Northern Africa. Most people don't realize that. And so uh, all of our Reformed confessions are Augustinian. And this idea of um, Paul and Augustine being our chief theologians. Well, um, one of the things I want to say, too, is that Reformed theology um, emphasizes above everything else the sovereignty of God and seeks to preserve that and elevate it above everything else. That is the doctrine above all other doctrines. You might say, that doesn't sound right, because shouldn't Jesus be the primary doctrine? No, no. Next time you're in the sanctuary, we have a great visual uh, presentation of that. Look at the chancel arch where the Celtic cross is hanging. What's at the top of that arch? There's a keystone. What's on the keystone? A crown. That symbolizes the sovereignty of God, that God is King of kings, Lord of lords. I actually used that in an illustration in a sermon I preached in the sanctuary one time. I said, you know, 
pull that keystone out, and the, what happens to the cross? It drops. You know, if, if God is not sovereign, then Jesus dying on the cross might have just been the unfortunate martyrdom of a guy who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But if God is sovereign, that's the only way the cross works. That it was the King of Kings actually being crucified, doing what we could not do for ourselves and accomplishing the once for all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that covers all of our sin. If God is not sovereign, the Christian faith is just, you know, just another faith. And yet most Christians don't understand. People come up to me and go, you know, I, I believe God's mostly sovereign. That's an oxymoron. You're either sovereign or you're not. And if you look at, if you read the Bible through the lens of the sovereignty of God, some of those hard things make sense. If you, if you don't look through that lens, it's going to bug the fool out of you. Try to remember when, for instance, when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I didn't see that. We're responsible for our own hearts, aren't we? What did it say? You know, God's weaving things into history and into our lives. We are not in control. God is in full control. And one thing Calvin said is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is never to be debated. It exists solely for the comfort and the assurance of believers. And that's true of all the five points of Calvinism. They're for assurance and comfort. Uh, and not to be bandied about, Calvin said, before unbelievers. Um, usually people say to me something like this. What does it mean to be reformed, Ron? I say, my answer is, you read the Bible from cover to cover and you don't dodge anything. If you do that, you'll wind up reformed. I really believe I've had people come and say, I did that. You were right. I'm, I'm with you now. I'm like, Okay. Um, our job is not to make theology up. It's to receive what's been revealed to us. Um, now, there's also mystery here. I, it's not all cut and dry. I remember sitting in a class. We're reading through Calvin's Institutes. By the way, Calvin wrote his magnum, magnum opus, was the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He wrote it for lay people. It's an exposition of the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. It's not too technical. It's long, two volumes. But I would encourage you, if you're really serious about Reformed theology, get Calvin's Institutes and, and start reading. And I remember in a class one day, he had a, my professor, Dr. Leith, had us read chap, two chapters the previous night, one on free will of man, and the next one's on the election of God, predestination. And as I read those two, in my first year in seminary, I'm going, these seem contradictory. And I raised my hand in class and pointed that out to Dr. Leith. And he said, yeah, it seems that way, doesn't it? But he said, if you read Scripture, you'll find out Scripture affirms the free will of man. It also affirms the total sovereignty of God. And he said, here's the way Calvin sees it. He said, it's, it's like a wheel. Here's the hub. And... Um, Christ is the center of our faith. And then there's spokes. I tried this marker out before class and it worked. Maybe this one worked. Yeah, okay. You have spokes. You have, you know, uh, I'm going to throw out some fancy theological terms. Soteriology, that's doctrine of salvation. 
justification, uh, sanctification, uh, the end times. These are all the doctrines of the faith. And I remember Leith saying, what's missing? It's like a wheel. There's their hub, there's your spoke. What's missing? Or we said, there's no rim. And he goes, that's Calvin. Calvin never puts a rim on the wheel. We have to bow before mystery. We, a mistake some people do is they try, we, we all want it nice and neat, wrapped up with a bow on it, and all tidy. And theology is not that way. You always have to make room for mystery. God's always greater than we can grasp as finite, sinful human beings. We're never going to get it right. One of the, re, the slogan of the Reformed Church in the Reformation was this. The church reformed, always reforming according to the Word of God. That's the way yours and my theology should be. Every, when I used to teach confirmation class here, I would get parents so upset. Because I had one class where I would pull out a picture, an obvious picture of Jesus, head of Christ. And I'd say to the kids, who is that? Of course, the kids thought it was a trick question. Nobody raised their hand. They were afraid to say Jesus afraid they'd be wrong. I said, come on, you all know who that, who is this? Who does it look like? Eventually, some kid will go, uh, Jesus. I said, it's right. Yes, Jesus. Why? And they said, well, he's got a beard. There's kind of an aura around his head. It was a classic head of Christ picture, you know. And I said, yeah, okay. And then I would shock the socks off. I would rip the picture up, ball it up, and throw it on the ground. They couldn't wait to get home to tell their parents. The youth minister, you know, ripped up a picture of Jesus. And I said, there's a reason I did that. Because that's what God wants to do with your picture of Jesus and mine every day. Today, August 22nd, 2021, I have a picture of Jesus that, I, that, is, that I've received from reading through the Word of God, through prayer, through sitting under sermons, singing hymns. But you know what? My picture of Jesus today, I hope, is not as accurate as my picture will be of Jesus tomorrow. I hope I will learn. You know, Jesus is a bottomless pit. I believe in eternity. We will spend eternity learning something new about Christ every day. You can't exhaust him. So my job as a Christian is to allow God to tear up my picture of Jesus today and replace it with a more accurate picture tomorrow. And you do that, the best way is to read through Scripture. Every day, be reading through Scripture and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ to you more accurately. And it's funny, in the, our former denomination, they took that slogan, the church reformed, always reforming, and they stopped it right there. And it became a slogan for the progressive side of the church that, which meant we just change our theology all the time according to what ever feels good and what's going on in culture. And I always raise my hand and say, according to the word of God. Well, they didn't want to hear that part. I'm a Scot. I love going to Scotland. You know what Glasgow's city motto is? Let Glasgow flourish. That was not the original motto. In the 1600s, they adopted the motto, let Glasgow flourish through the preaching of the word. You know what Harvard's motto is? Veritas, it's Latin for truth. That's not the original motto of Harvard. It was truth in service to Christ and his church. 
And they jump. Now, Harvard doesn't even believe in truth, only truths, plural. Um, today's world, you know, postmodern thinking, there is no such thing as absolute truth, according to our culture. A study of evangelical Christians. Not too long ago, I revealed that 68% of evangelical Christians say there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, they, that's because they haven't really thought it through. And you and I are all products of an educational system that's tried to indoctrinate us rather than help us think. And it's getting worse. But think about this. The only way you can affirm that there's no absolute truth is to become an atheist. Just think about it. what would be a definition for God. If God is not absolute, then what is? So if God's an absolute, then there is no God. So you become God. And that is one of the things Reformed theology has always tried to guard against, and that's idolatry. Making God into our, our image, or making ourselves God, rather than bowing before the truth that God has made us in His image. And we're to subsume our theology to His word, not try to bend his word to fit what's palatable at, for the current culture or what we feel is, you know, nice and good. So, um, well, we're out of time. I'm sorry. We're going to get the chime of the owl. You what? If we're going to get the chime of the owl, we have to move. Okay. <laughs> one, one final word. Studies show that most Christians today in America don't have good theology. In fact, a guy's written a book on this, and he says most Christians today, majority, vast majority, believe in what's called moral therapeutic deism. The idea that religion's all about moral, good and bad, you know, I try to be a good person. Therapeutic, it's about what I can get to make me feel better, and deism. Yeah, there's a God, but you know, he's not really interested in my life, and he's way out there. That's bad theology, folks. Reformed theology will bring you into uh, a, a grace-induced servanthood relationship rather than moral therapy. Uh, you know, it's not about being good and bad. It's about being a recipient of grace, sola gratia, where God accepts you and me despite who we are, and we can have this personal relationship um, with a personal God. Okay, we're going to stop. Let me pronounce a benediction and you can go to worship. Go now in peace and bless the world. And remember, you go nowhere by accident. Where you're going, God is sending you and where you are, He has placed you. God has a purpose for your life right where you are. Christ Jesus who indwells you has something that he wants to do in and through your life, right where you are. Believe this and go in his grace and in his love and in his power. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.